Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Manju Kapoor. Manju visited the Faber offices recently on a trip from her home in New Delhi to coincide with the publication of her fifth novel, Custody. Manju achieved success with her first book, Difficult Daughters, which won a Commonwealth First Novel Prize and was a number one bestseller in India. Her subsequent books have continued to chart the effects of a changing India on people's personal lives, none more so than her latest, Custody. Raman and Shagun seem to have it all. He has a good job in marketing with a multinational drinks company. She is young and beautiful, the mother of two young children. They live in a smart apartment in New Delhi and are planning a trip to England. But Shagun wants something more, and Raman's boss, Ashok, is more than ready to supply it. Their affair is going to rip apart the marriage and make their children the subject of a prolonged custody battle through the labyrinthine Indian legal system. When I met Manju Kapoor, I started by asking her about setting her book in the late 1990s. Had she chosen that as a particular time of change in an India that was opening up more and more to the forces of globalization? Well, I chose it deliberately because the 90s was the time of economic liberalization and the country was opening up to foreign investment and MNCs, multinational companies, were coming and hiring and... uh, with higher salaries and so on and so forth. So when I started thinking about this book, I wondered what kind of impact would that have on a family. One can see the impact of the opening up of our society in India, in urban centers in particular. There are more women working, which is a good thing. I mean, anything that gets uh, women working is a good thing. Working and independent. And uh, they are, and also another thing that's happened is that Western influences on manners, on clothes, even on eating habits is becoming uh, increasingly more apparent. So that's why I set it against the 90s and it straddles, you know, it goes into the 21st century for about three or four years. It's interesting because Ashok, the man whom Shagun falls in love with and for whom she leaves her husband, is born and educated at an Indian school. But then he goes abroad and spends a lot of his his early career abroad. So he's got some very interesting perspectives and he's kind of almost an embodiment of, of some of these changes, isn't he? These attitudes that he, he brings back, the critical eye he brings to Indian society. Well, he's come back. You see, he's not really Indian in that sense. He's kind of global. He's international because he comes back to India with a multinational. So he comes back as representing a foreign brand. That's significant because that's, you know, his character isn't, as I said, wholly Indian. It's kind of a mix. And when he sees Shagun, he thinks what attracts him to Shagun is also that she seems a mix, that you can't identify where she's from. That is just because she's fair, she's got green eyes, she could, and yet she has, she has had an Indian traditional upbringing. So she has that part of India in her, but the visible part of her is, could be anywhere. So that's what attracts him to her. So yes, you're right that the fact that he is, he's educated in India, but that was just his early education. And later on, it's abroad, you know, again, even his education is kind of a brand, you know, the Harvard Business School and so on and so forth. So these things are 
as if these global brands are represent a certain kind of aspiration, Indian aspiration, not only individually, mm. but uh, as a country that, okay, we are a market that has these brands, but we can also be as good as, you know, prove ourselves to be as good as them and, you know, open up, but also compete with them. So, okay, the brand has come, but we have our own image also to present to the world in a way. And that image is of India growing, India, you know, being an economic superpower or trying to be and so on and so forth. Many people, I mean, and this has nothing to do with the book, find this totally pathetic, you know, how are we a superpower when we have so much poverty, so much bad health, when education and uh, health are still issues for so many millions of people. Ashok and, and Raman, who works for him, for this multinational, which is referred to as, as the brand, they're both devoting large parts of their energy, most of their, their waking hours, really, to selling a mango drink, which seems ironic because we, we have to presume this is a, a European or an American corporation which is actually selling a, a mango drink to the Indians, and that seems ironic. <laughs> well, that's the, uh, the thing about, at least so far as food is concerned in India, think global, act local. And we have had, uh, for example, Kentucky Fried Chicken did not succeed. But other brands do. But they, they succeed often with difficulty because they make losses in the beginning years. But in order, I mean, India is seen as a vast consumer society. I mean, a billion, over a billion con potential consumers. So this is seen as very attractive. On the other hand, how do you get people to consume things they've never consumed before? You create a need, you know, market it with glamour and so on and so forth. So these strategies combine, in a way, Indian ethos with Western marketing. So it's a combination of both. So yes, that is what is happening in India now, that we have these things adapted to an Indian market. Similarly, lifestyles adapted to an Indian, adapted to an Indian, you know, a combination of Western and Indian. How do these two fit together? It's a somewhat uneasy mix, and it's happening all around you in India, especially in, as I said, in urban, in urban centers with, you know, the rising middle class and so on and so forth. So I wanted to look at some of the tensions behind these, uh, this coming together of, uh, you know, two very different ways of being, of thinking about yourself. For example, in custody, how do you think about yourself? How do women think about themselves or how men or women? Do they think of themselves as part of a family unit to which everything is subservient? Or do they think of themselves as individuals whose own desires are equally important and they are going to fulfill those, those desires even at the cost of the family? So that's what I wanted to look at. We've mentioned Shagun, one of the, the leading female characters in the book already, and you, you mentioned that sort of indefinable blend of, of East and West that's part of her appearance and the fact that she had a traditional upbringing. Say a little bit more about her background, what kind of experience she's had before the events the book narrates. Shagun's thing really is her beauty. And like a society that is... Uh, devoted to appearances. Her appearance takes her where she goes. So in a sense, after, uh, Shangun has just had a traditional upbringing. She's, you know, the daughter of a widow. 
she's had an education in one of the better colleges in Delhi University and then she got married like good looking women often do sometimes they follow a career afterwards but you know they're so sought after that they marry very quickly uh, right after college and that's what happened to her so she marries after college and it's after that really that her beauty the way she looks is seen as needing something more than just the home grown product just ramen so when she gets this opportunity she takes it you know because then for her to the world opens not through her own initiative but through men through marriage through uh, again leaving india and going abroad and she ends up in new york in mm-hmm. fact so and yet from the outside i suppose she and raman could be seen to be living the you know living the dream he's working he's got a well paid job for a multinational company he seems to be doing quite well he's the talent spotted by the by the bosses and she's very beautiful they've got a nice lifestyle yeah is there an implicit sort of critique about the 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 risks inherent in 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 that sort of rapidly accelerating dream no the critique wasn't of the ra- because you see other people can do it and want to do it i mean if you can rise rapidly surely I mean a lot of dreams urban dreams are centered around that. So it's not a critique of that. It's how do you handle it? How do you handle success and money? Do you handle it by leaving it and jumping up to something else or do you handle it by then enjoying it, being able to be satisfied by it? The problem with her is is her dissatisfaction. because suddenly she feels and of course ashok is feeding her these ideas but she gets i mean she allows them to be fed to her so suddenly she feels that you know impatient her life seems too restricted and and you know small even so that's when she wants you know the world to open up and that's really you know just i guess a sign of consumerism greed or whatever that you want more 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 and where do you stop really where do you stop she this could happen again and if that is a very modern phenomenon and something which i guess indian women have only recently encountered this this you know this option of self realization whether it's through consumerism or whatever ishita the other female protagonist of the book has a marriage which also ends but for what we might see as very traditional reasons can you say something about her experience in her first marriage yeah there are traditional reasons so what i'm doing with putting both these marriages together is saying that it's not necessarily true that if you lead a modern lifestyle your marriage is going to crumble there there are traditional reasons also for a marriage to crumble So it's not you know okay modern all bad traditional all good that's not the case she has a traditional marriage with a traditional joint family shagun is a nuclear family and yet both these marriages are crumbling because of different dynamics but the result is the same so i didn't want to really do a traditional versus modern thing i think those dichotomies can be misleading and too black and white and you know uh, don't really tell us anything so that's why i did that you know that okay that for traditional reasons i mean she has modern methods to diagnose you know <laughs> traditional a traditional mm. condition or whatever but 
it's still bad for her. So women do, but here the, the men suffer too. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, where, did did you f- did you sort of feel when you were writing the book your sympathies particularly drawn to one or other of the characters, or did that did that shift? Or how did you how did you sort of manage that as you were writing about each of them, each of them you know, suffering pain for different reasons in different ways? Did my sympathies shift? No, no. My sympathies don't shift. My sympathy is with every one of them. I don't want to write as though, you know, there's one person who is bad and who is, you know, <laughs> the villain of the villain or the villainess of the piece. They all have their dynamics. They all want to be happy. They're all going about it in ways that you know, uh, where they have to negotiate their own desire for happiness with the claims of other people on them. And some of them, some of the characters feel the claims of those other people more and some feel the claims less. But uh, it depends really on their own sense of duty and responsibility. And they also, it also depends on what they think they can get. I really do believe that our responses to situations are partly formed by circumstances and how much we feel uh, we can get away with getting what we want, you know, in the way we want it. So nobody's really good or bad. They're just all somewhat struggling and unhappy. But given all that, I think that Raman is the one who is really seen as consistently, not that I sympathize with him more, but in the end, he is the one who, in a way, loses the most. So that's a little sad. Mm. I suppose that's what I was trying to, I was leading you to see if you would confess that, because that was my sense reading the book, that that Raman probably, and and also perhaps the character whose emotional life is most explored and most gone into, and we probably learn most about his his shifting emotions throughout the book. Well, he's the one consistently there from beginning Mm. to end. The women come and go, and like the first, thing half is more about Shagun, the second half is more about Ishita. But Raman's there consistently as husband and as parent. So yes, yes, he, we are with him from beginning to end. Uh, yeah. And for someone who who, you know, has read novels about emotional troubles in New York or Paris or London, a very big difference in your book is the role played by the, the, the parents and the extended families. I mean, that's, that's probably self-evident to say that, but, <laughs> but, but that, it, it struck me, it's, it's such a consideration. And whereas these problems would probably be worked out within one generation in a European family, it was v- very much part of the fabric of the novel is what the parents are saying and their influence and how they're, they're handling it or being handled. Well, you know, Indian life is... <laughs> and uh, Indian novels, Indian life, I mean, it is very family-centered. And so, yeah, your parents are there, you know, whether you want it or not. And uh, so they, they are very much part of the picture, even if you're not living with them. But they're, but they're also coping with these changes, aren't they? Um, Ishita's father, he says at one point, you know, we've respected the norms, now it's time to, to deal with the needs. And I, it's, that seemed to me very a very good way of sort of summing up what, what a lot of the, the, the parents were sort of struggling with. Yes, yes, it is true. Because in India as elsewhere, I guess, parents see themselves reflected in their children. So I also... Uh, 
wanted to show Ishita's parents changing along with her and somehow being able to do that as, of course, you know, this set of parents is contrasted with Raman's parents who also have to change. So it's not as though anybody is stuck or fixed in, in, in their responses, but they do change because they love their children. So there is that. And actually, I wanted to spend more time on the parents because, but you know, the book was getting very long. <laughs> because there are three sets of parents in this. Yeah. So, so that I wanted to, in fact, do Ashok and his parents. But, you know, then I thought this is going to get very unwieldy. <laughs> Well, I, I, I like the fact that Ashok was remained something of a mystery. There are times when he does come into sharper focus, for example, when his stepson is going to secondary school and he has a very direct influence on that. But at other times, he, he, does, he does remain somewhat shadowy uh, you know, shadowy. in the background. Yeah, that's deliberately done because his importance is really, he's just like a force dropped into this, mm. these setups mm. and uh, to see really the effect he has on them. That was the thing, not so much his own life or his own thoughts or whatever, whatever, but how he affects them. In the beginning, in fact, I wasn't going to have him at all. He was just going to be completely off stage and uh, only seen in connection through other people. But then I changed that. Everybody said I couldn't do that. <laughs> so my writer's group, my friends. <laughs> we haven't talked about the children yet. And they obviously are a very, very big part of it. A lot of the book concerns the the battle for custody of the children. Was that really the fundamental thing that made you want to write this novel to actually look at the, yes, the yes. Im- implications yeah, and yeah, the impact yeah. on, on um, you know, those children? Yeah, the legal system, that was one thing that uh, I wanted to, I mean, the legal system in India is really, it's exactly like this. It's worse, in fact. So uh, the legal system was one thing I, I wanted to look at. When I was writing about the children and, and and the issue of custody, I didn't really want to look at, I mean, I did want to look at how they were feeling, but I didn't want to explore it through their consciousness so much. I see how, because they also become ciphers or they're, they're a battleground really over which, and, and the grown-ups are fighting on this battleground. So what I really wanted to look at was that. And they are not incidental, but, uh, yeah, it's about their custody, but I don't know. It's not about them. No. So, say something about the Indian legal system then for people who haven't uh, <laughs> any experience of it because that's oh, it's horrendous <laughs> it's horrendous it's overloaded like our educational system like our health system so it's overloaded and uh, there are endless delays I mean it's very hard to to see a case to its conclusion I won't say within your lifetime because it does happen but it's common for cases to take five years, 10 years, two decades, you know, it can just go on and on forever. And then you've lost your life, you've lost your youth, you've lost everything. So it's extremely pernicious, actually. And there is a lot of debate in newspapers today, how to speed things up. Because there are even cases of people dying and, you know, their children are fighting their cases and so on and so forth. I mean, that has to do with property. But I mean, there are stories of people dying in prison before their case comes to be heard. So it's bad. Our system is bad because it's overloaded. That's why. 
So tell me, tell me a little bit about your own background. Were you brought up in a household where, where reading and education were, were highly prized? Oh, yes, yes. My father was an educationist and, uh, and, you know, very fond of books and so on and so forth. So I grew up in this atmosphere, you know, post-independence India. So total post-colonial project, you know, that reading English thinking in English and, well, now writing in English. Mm. So so that was the emphasis in my family on education. But that, the emphasis on education in most families hasn't changed. It's tremendously important because it's seen as, as I said, in middle-class families, education is seen as important. You know, in business families and families with inherited wealth, it's not seen as so significant. In trader families, like in home, again, it's not important. And it depends on where you come from, the the emphasis is placed, especially if you're a girl, if you're mm. a boy, if you're going to get married, if you're going to work, how important is this? All these are things that change according to your class, your background, mm. your gender. Tell me about your own determination to become a writer. When, when did that start and what, what fed it? That started when I was, uh, I had my last child when I was 41. It was only after that that I thought of becoming a writer. And uh, because I certainly hadn't always wanted to be, not at all. But Indian writing at that time, this was 1991, and Indian writing was booming, and, you know, everybody around me was writing, and I wanted to do something else besides teaching. So I thought, let me try writing. It was really just like that. Just let me try it and see where I go. And that, uh, you know, then I said, I'll try it for two years. And two came three, five, six, eight. It took eight years to get my first mm. book published. What were the subjects which attracted you? Did you feel there were there were issues in Indian society that you wanted to tackle particularly? How did, how did, it, how did it go from that decision <laughs> that you're going to write to actually forming novels? Well, very tentatively. I find my stories, uh, as I write them, the stories kind of come. I, I have, maybe because I've been a teacher all my life, I, I tend to think in terms of themes and, for example, in difficult, I mean, these themes are useful to no one but me because uh, I don't even know whether they're apparent to the reader. But in uh, Difficult Daughters, I wanted to explore how educated women leaded uneducated lives, you know, lives that were really quite took choices that were bad for them, made decisions that went against their best interests because of love or emotional reasons or whatever, whatever. So what was making them do that? And I started with a divorced woman in her 40s. And then I said, okay, what's making this woman like her? Look at her mother. What's making her mother like her, like that? Look at her mother. So by the end of looking at all these mothers, I had written 170,000 words and I said, no point coming back to the present now, just chuck that. So really it was through writing that I found a story and that happens every time. So I have a theme and the theme is usually drawn from things that happen around me, like globalization and economic liberalization in this or in home, joint family, and not the joint family just like that, but how joint families can both sustain their women and be very supportive as well as destroy them, both in the same site that's happening. And with a married woman, it was to do with the Babri Masjid, which was again something, an issue that I felt very strongly about. 
the immigrant was all these NRIs. What happens to your identity when you move? Because I've lived abroad and NRI and my daughters are abroad. And NRIs are something that every family has. And we see every winter they come back for mm. two, three weeks and then <laughs> go back again. So the same conversations you hear, the same issues. What is it that makes you Indian? What is it that, you know, how, how Indian do you become abroad? Very Indian, mm. far more Indian mm. abroad than at home. <laughs> Manju Kapoor. Her latest novel, Custody, is out now in paperback and her four previous books are also available from Faber. There are full details on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. While you're there, be sure to check out the podcast archive, where my previous guests have included Orhan Pamuk, Paul Oster and Peter Carey, and also the Faber blog, The Thought Fox. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.